Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Home Design Academy podcast. Today we're going to be talking about site design. And I hope you'll have a better understanding of what drives site design and designing with the environment. Hi, this is Chris from N3 Architects. And thank you for tuning in to the Home Design Academy podcast. I'm a licensed architect and I'm here to help your average homeowner understand the complexities of design and construction so that they can make better decisions when they build or remodel their house. And now on to the show. So first off, most of most everything that we're going to be talking about today is site planning and design for new construction. If you're renovating a house or a building, you can take some of these into consideration especially if you're going to be adding on. But for the most part, I'm going to be addressing new construction in this episode. So the first thing you want to consider is the approach to the site. The approach to your house is very important. It sets the tone for how your house or building will be experienced by both you and your guests. Just as a first impression is is important when meeting someone new, the first impression of your house is just as important. And I'm not just talking about curb appeal. I feel like curb appeal is a generic term that people throw out there uh, without really knowing what they're talking about. Sure, you can make everything look nicer with new paint and nicer finishes and some nice plantings or flowers. But what I'm talking about here is something deeper, something more intentional. It's about using the approach to your house to set up the story you want to tell, just like the opening scene of a movie or being introduced to a new character in a book. The approach to your house should say something about the type of person you are and the type of place you're about to enter. Some things to consider. What direction are people coming from? What are the first thing you want them to see? Are there any privacy areas that you want hidden from view? What's the distance of the approach? Is your house and your lot going to be set right on the street or is it set back from the street? Are there slight glimpses of the building or a view as you approach in a meandering type of fashion? Or is the is this entire structure visible right from the street from the beginning? The next thing to consider are views, and that's views to and from the site. Views go along with approach. Not every house has an amazing view, but all sites do have a story to tell. If you do have a nice view like mountains, oceans, or lake, or something else, do you want that view to be highlighted when you enter the site? Is that the first thing you want people to see? Or do you want to hide the view or tease the view to them, only to be revealed in a more dramatic fashion later on? Your answers to these questions will help determine where on the site your house will be placed and in what direction it will be orientated. If you don't have a view, maybe you're in a nice wooded lot and maybe you're, uh, there's a, a beautiful grove of trees that you want to highlight as you enter the site. Maybe you want to take people through or around these trees as they enter and these trees tell the story. The next thing to consider is the path of the sun and the sun angles. So just some basic strategies of daylighting design. Daylighting is not just about placing windows. It involves the entire building, the massing, the orientation, the roof lines, the materials, shading devices, and much more. If your house is orientated and designed correctly, you can drastically reduce the amount of artificial light needed. A reduction in artificial light is a reduction in your energy bill and saves you money each month. So daylighting is very important. You also want to think about daylighting in combination to your performance programming strategies that we talked about in the last episode to determine what rooms you want direct sunlight in and at what time. Here's an example. 
if you love to watch football on Sundays, you don't want direct sunlight on shining onto your TV during the afternoon. That's just common sense. Along with sun angles is designing for solar power. Now, even if you're not going to be placing solar panels on your house at this time when you're building it, you may want to in the future, or another owner down the line may want to add them. So it's always good to consider the installation of solar panels on your roof and to do that you'll need to know what the best angles are these angles will dictate the orientation of your roof and even the design of your roof to maximize the amount of panels you do not want a complicated roof design where you intend to place solar panels you also don't want to have chimneys or plumbing vents penetrating the roof in that location either because that's going to limit the amount of panels that you can put there So thinking about these things will impact not just the roof design, but the interior layout of your house. So basic directionality for solar panels is having your roof face true south if you're north of the equator and true north if you're you're in the southern hemisphere. Designing for solar not only dictates the orientation of the house and the roof angles and even the interior rooms, but also the location of the trees and the vegetation. If you have to clear cut trees in a particular location, or if you want to avoid planting new trees in a particular location. There's a great app for your phone to help you figure out sun angles, and that app is called the Sun Seeker app. Um, so in the, if you're in the Sunseeker app, you just click on the map view at the bottom of the page and you, you use the slide bar to change the time of the year and you can see how the sun angles change throughout the day and throughout the year. Um, and it's good to compare as a starting point, it's good to compare the summer and the winter solstices. So what does this all mean, sun angles? We've determined it helps you consider where interior rooms will be located. It will help you determine where windows can be located and their size. If you need any exterior sun control or shading devices or massing elements in your design to control the daylighting entering into your house, it will help you lay out your interior spaces. It will help you lay out spaces on your property for outdoor activities, areas that you want full sun, such as if you have a pool or an area that that you want the sun to get into, or if you want areas of shade to sit. And we also know it will affect your roof lines. Sun angles might also tell you where a garden might be best located. It will help you determine what types of plantings, shade trees, trees types, and where grass will grow the best. Next thing to talk about is prevailing winds. So when you're talking about prevailing winds and natural ventilation, some of the basic strategies for natural ventilation, if you use them correctly, will reduce the the need for air conditioning, which again will save you money. By understanding which direction the wind comes from, you can set up the design and massing of your house to capture cross ventilation. Just like designing for daylighting, natural ventilation design can get detailed, but for site planning in this phase of, of, your, of your progress, you just want to understand the basic wind orientation. The other thing that knowing the direction of the prevailing winds will help you with is blocking winter winds if you're in a cold climate. If you know the primary direction of the winter winds, you can create natural buffers or plant a row of coniferous trees to block those winter winds. By blocking the winter winds, you reduce the amount of cold air blowing against your house in the winter, and you can have a reduction in your heating demand. So next, let's talk about designing with landscape. I already just mentioned how you can use evergreen trees to block wind. You can also use deciduous trees So when it comes to using deciduous trees, now deciduous trees are the types that grow leaves in the spring and then shed the leaves in the fall. So deciduous trees are great to use in strategic locations where you want summertime shade but wintertime sun. 
Now, you can think that these shaded areas don't have to be locations in the landscape for you to, to enjoy, but it could also be used to shade your house or to shade your driveway. So you use the deciduous trees that, that shade your house in the summer, and it reduces the heat load. Uh, it reduces the, the heating of your house, which reduces your air conditioning load. You can plant deciduous trees on the southern side of your driveway, which will provide shade for your driveway, which will mean your cars won't be as hot in the summer. But in the winter, you get that sun to help naturally melt the driveway, help naturally melt the snow. And the same thing with your house. In the winter, those deciduous trees shed their leaves and that sunlight gets to your house and it can help warm it up. Whenever I'm starting out with a new site, and you should do the same thing with yours, before you just go in and clear cut everything, you should have somewhat of a plan, somewhat of a general area where you think the house is going to be located. And you should document what existing vegetation or what existing trees to save. I really don't like it when, when builders come in and just clear cut a lot down to nothing. That's, uh, I think, a complete waste because there most likely would have been some nice trees to save that could help the design, that could help the, your house look nicer. So once you've determined which trees you want to save, you want to stake out the drip line of the tree. Now, the drip line of the tree is the outermost perimeter of the leaves and branches, which also represents the basic outline of the root system underground. Whenever there's a tree to save, I want you to go and, and have your contractor use a safety type of fence, those orange plastic fences, and put it around the drip line. That way, that way you make sure that nobody parks under the tree, that nobody stores materials under the tree, and those roots stay protected. The next thing I want you to do when designing with the landscape is you can create zones for different activities. And you want to think about this before designing your house. How does your family use your yard? Or how do you want your family to use your yard? Are you going to be having parties outside? Are there, does your family play a lot of yard games? Do you want a pool? Where's the best place to locate a shed? Plan out how you're going to use the site just as the same way you planned out how you're going to use your house. Do a performance programming exercise on the site. You can start mapping these areas on the site. And when you go to get into designing the house, you have it, these things in mind. You can't build over here or you can build over here. And it's all part of a puzzle that starts to come together for you. If you happen to have a site that's up on a hill or down a hill or has a steep grade, I want you to think about the opportunities you have in traversing those grades. Rather than simply making a flat area on the site for your driveway that either slopes up or down to a normal building lot or a normal foundation, you can consider how to step the house up or down with the land, how to create little destination points along the way, and just be a little creative with it. Why don't you think about how to best work with the grades, not only to make your house a little unique, but maybe to save you a little money in your site costs. Okay, let's get into the Ask an Architect segment. 
Before we get into this week's question, I want to uh, let you know of a new way for you to submit your questions to me. You can continue submitting your questions to hda.n3architect at gmail.com. Keep sending those questions in. The more questions I get, the better, you know, the better questions we can focus here on the podcast. But I've got a new way to send you questions. And if you go to speakpipe.com slash home design academy, you can easily record a quick question for me. You can do it right from your mobile phone or compute or your computer. It takes about 30 seconds. You don't have to fill out anything. You don't have to do anything special. Just go to that, that website, hit the button to record, ask your question, and hit send. Once again, that's speakpipe.com slash home design academy. So today's question, how much of my overall budget should be spent for construction? Now, this is a good one. Budgeting for construction is something that's very misunderstood by many people who have not gone through a project before. When you're thinking about your house and budgeting for your house, there are a number of things that you have to consider, not just the cost of construction, not just your contractor's cost. So I don't want to get into specific costs because each project is different, each site is different, each contractor is different, each architect you work with is going to be different, each state or town might have different requirements and different fee schedules. So, you know, I don't want to give you exact numbers, but I'm just going to give you a, a list of potential costs that you should expect to pay, and that comes out of your total budget. So the first one, if you don't have it already, is the purchase of the land. Purchasing the land may have legal or real estate fees that come along with that, closing costs, any banking fees that might be required, hiring a lawyer, etc. You may have potential demo and removal of existing structures on site if there's already a house there, or if there's a shed structure that needs to come down, or anything else that needs to come down. You'll have site clearing, tree and brush removal as needed. Now, remember when I was talking about site design, I don't recommend that a site be clear cut. Be strategic about which trees you want to take down. You're going to have to hire a surveyor to survey the property. That's going to run at least a few thousand dollars. You're going to have to complete any testing for a, a well water or a septic system, if applicable, perk tests, that sort of thing. You're going to have architectural fees, whether you hire an architect or whether you purchase from a, a plan resource book online or whether you have a builder that builds a, their stock houses. There's going to be design fees one way or another. You're going to have any applicable utility fees if there's fees to tap into the public water or the public sewer. And there may be additional costs if you have to run underground utilities and patch the road. There may be curb cut fees from your town if you have to create a new curb cut for your driveway. There's going to be building permit fees. There might be uh, fees from your local town or city building inspector. There's going to be landscaping fees. Many times when you're building a new house, there's nothing more than simple seeding of the of the grass included in your cost of the house. So if you want to plant shrubs, plant trees, make your yard look nice, you have to consider all those costs. And there may be other costs that's specific to your project that I'm not listing here. So what you would do is take your total budget and subtract all of those fees and all of those costs, and that will give you a total construction budget. But this total construction budget is still not what you should plan on spending for the co- for the construction of your house because you should always have contingency funds built into your budget. Just let me get things clear here. There has never been a construction project 
where there hasn't been at least one problem on. No project will ever be perfectly on budget, perfectly on time, with absolutely no issues. It just doesn't happen. You're dealing with human beings. Human beings will make mistakes. You're dealing with unknown conditions and things happen. And hopefully you have a smooth project. If you have a good team, a good architect, and a good contractor, that goes a long way. But even things such as the flooring that you want may not be in stock. So you have to pick this other flooring and it just happens to be a little bit more expensive. You need to have these contingency funds to cover these costs when these things come up. So the total construction cost minus the contingency will inform you and your architect and your builder just large or just how nice of a house you can afford. So let's break down contingency for a second. Um, for new construction, if you've hired an experienced architect and an experienced contractor, I would plan on a contingency that is no less than 5% of the total construction budget. However, if you did not hire a licensed architect and you just purchased house plans online or through a plan book, or if you're, you're using a contractor who might be relatively new, I would recommend you set aside 10% for your contingency because more things could possibly go wrong. You might want to make more changes because the plans haven't been custom tailored to your liking. And having that extra money is a safety net for you. So let's break it down using hypothetical numbers here. Let's say that you're building a new house and your total budget for the project is $600,000. That's it. That's your max all in, $600,000. So what you would do is you take the cost of the land and all those other fees that I mentioned. Let's just say they come out to $120,000. You take the $600,000 total budget, subtract that one twenty, dollars and that leaves you with $480,000 for your total construction budget. So you can see right away, you thought you were building a $600,000 house, but in reality, you can only afford $480,000. Now, a 10% contingency on that would be $48,000, leaving you with $432,000 left to plan for construction. Let's now say that the average cost of construction in your area is $200 a square foot. Again, this will vary by region. This will vary by the type of house you're building. This will vary by the type of the materials you have, so on and so forth. Your $432,000 divided by $200 a square foot means that you should plan on building a 2,160 square foot house. This is, again, this is not hard numbers. These are rough estimates, but it's great for planning. So now you know, I can't go and build a 3,000 square foot house. I have to keep it closer to 2,000 square feet. For me personally, I really think that you should carry as close to a 10% contingency as possible. It's so much better to be a little safe and a little conservative and have that extra money just in case something goes wrong or you want to make some changes along the way. When it comes to numbers and initial planning, I'm always going to recommend a conservative approach. Don't plan to spend every penny of your budget from the start. Don't plan to build the absolute maximum size house that you can. See if you can back down the size of your house a little bit. Make it conservative. Have that contingency for what-if scenarios. And as you start to get hard costs from your contractor, real actual quotes, then you can start to plan to, to do some extra things or some extra upgrades along the way. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Home Design Academy podcast. I hope you've enjoyed yourself and learned something along the way. 
make sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you'd like to have your question answered on the Ask an Architect segment, please send an email to hda.n3architect at gmail.com. That's hda.n3architect at gmail.com. Visit n3architecture.com for all the show notes and other useful information. Tune in to the next episode. Thank you and goodbye.